Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Economics. I'm Tim Jones, and my guest today is Ola Inset, author of Reinventing Liberalism, The Politics, Philosophy, and Economics of Early Neoliberalism, published by Springer in 2020. This year, more than 40 books will be published in English with the magic word neoliberal in the title. For many in the academy, this word has become interchangeable with capitalist, laissez-faire, fiscally austere, or anything just short of socialism. This is frustrating because when it was first coined by self-proclaimed neoliberals either side of the Second World War, the term had a specific meaning, and this has been lost in the culture war of words. By taking us back to neoliberalism's embryonic debates in 1920s Vienna, and then to the movement's founding conference in the Swiss Alps in 1947, Dr. Inset gives us a precise definition of this economic and political philosophy, and it's probably not what you think. Ola Inset is a postdoctoral researcher at the BI Norwegian Business School in Oslo and has so far published three other books, all in Norwegian, the most recent being The Market Turn, A History of Neoliberalism in Norway. The book we're discussing today, Reinventing, Neo- uh, Reinventing Liberalism, is a reworking of his PhD thesis for the European University Institute and for which he won the 2019 Joseph Dorfman Dissertation Prize from the History of Economic Society. Ola, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for having me. Well, I've got to say, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. Um, I mean, for a long time, I've been looking for a book that really gets to grips with what neoliberalism is and what it isn't. And it seemed to me this book finally does that. So could you start by doing two things? And they're two quite big things. But anyway, (laughs) the first, could you set up the core argument of the book? And then second, can you take us through its structure, which is unusual in in, in a book of this kind? Right. Well, I think the core argument of the book is to situate uh, neoliberalism in the interwar years as a, in many ways, a response to socialism. And as, at its very core, an argument um, saying that a modern society, uh, which is globally intertwined and uh, uh, at least trying to be democratic one way or the other uh, has to be based on the mechanisms of markets. And then there are a variety of ways in which different types of neoliberals think that you can achieve such a thing as a modern society based on markets. But that's the sort of starting point and that's what brings together quite different ways of thinking about this, which includes Austrian economics, German order liberalism, and uh, Chicago School economics. Uh, So that's, I think, the shortest summary I could possibly give uh, about uh, my definition of neoliberalism. And as for the book's structure, um, uh, it has two parts, uh, where part one is quite wide in scope, uh, and it presents... uh, the background for part two, which is then uh, on a very microscopic level. So part one goes from 1920 to 1947, and part two goes from April 1st, 1947, to April 10th, 1947. 
Uh, and that was the founding meeting of the, what was then named on the last day of the conference, the Mont Pelerin Society, which is an organization that exists uh, to this day. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, I think to explain why I uh, went into such detail on those 10 days, uh, I think I have to go back to, as you mentioned, I did my PhD at a place called the European University Institute at a history part- department there, which was dominated, I think, at least to a certain extent, then by cultural approaches to history, uh, where even sort of social historians were very interested in the sort of details of working class life, uh, more so than, and perhaps to the detriment of the sort of larger social structures of which they formed part and, and things like that. Uh, but I was quite fascinated by these sorts of approaches and finding out what really happened, so to speak, and moving away from the grand narratives and really investigating the past on its own premises, so to speak. Um, and I also had a supervisor, an Irish historian called Lucy Ryle, who had used this micro-historical approach uh, in her work on modern Italian history, especially she wrote a great book called uh, Under the Volcano, which has a lot of details about a peasant uprising in Sicily in the 19th century. And this micro-history is used as a, as a sort of tool for narration uh, to give some color and detail, uh, but also the idea is to a certain extent that um, details and surprising perhaps facts can undermine or at least nuance previous scholarships that tells a sort of larger story and the whole grand narrative. But then in order to do that, perhaps has to overlook certain facts in order to achieve the sort of narrative cohesion. So it has two functions, really. And if you're able to sort of zoom in and out and changing between the two different scales, macro and micro, then I think it'd be a really fruitful approach. And so I was sort of struck by all this and interested in all of it. But then I also, what I really wanted to do was to write about intellectual history and about ideas, about politics and economics uh, in this incredibly interesting uh, high stakes time and place, which is Europe in the first half of the 20th century. And, and so the way I tried to combine these things, the very concrete micro-historical detail with much more abstract history of ideas and philosophy, uh, is to try to enter into a debate within the field of intellectual history about what it means actually to put ideas into context. Because that's been a goal for intellectual history for, for some time, especially the current known as the Cambridge School, whose leading lights have been um, Quentin Skinner and J.J.A. Pocock, who moved from the sort of old-fashioned view of ideas as a sort of, a sort of timeless truths to instead looking at the social and political context of debates and what sorts of arguments great thinkers were involved in, what they were arguing against. Um, and another spin on this has been for intellectual historians to be very interested in things like uh, the book as an object and the history of translations, different editions, and so on. Uh, but since I knew that I wanted to write about early neoliberalism, and I found out there had been, there had been this 10-day conference in the Alps in 1947, uh, of which domains had been preserved, uh, I decided to write a sort of micro-history of that conference and then do some of that detailed micro-historical work and use that as a means of contextualizing the idea of the people who were present at the conference. So that's sort of part two. But in order to get there, you need some sort of background to understand what they're talking about. So part one sort of takes us through the prehistory of the conference, so to speak. Yeah. Well, it it does make it a very easy read, and it sort of reminded me of reading the second half of the book. In particular, re- reminded me of reading, um, you know, good political journalism, uh, sort of fly on the wall journalism. And, and you, you actually begin part two by, um, you know, you're talking about the fog of pipe tobacco around the Hotel du Lac, and <laughs> you know that you 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 say that when you went to look at the documents. In, in various archives, they still smelled of the pipe tobacco, and, and 
I mean, could you talk us through that? Do you know some of the some of the the background, your visit to the hotel, and and your conversation with um, with Dorothy Hahn, who who was who was the secretary to uh, to Hayek at the meeting? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the, those documents really do smell like pipe smoke, which I thought was which is not something maybe you'd you'd uh, you'd put into a thesis, but I thought. Um, yeah, I, I, was, I guess I was sort of in two worlds at once. I was in this world of uh, cultural historians who really go to the go to incredible depths of detail uh, about things that have happened in the past, but I also wanted to talk about big ideas about about the market and about the economy and democracy. Um, and so, yeah, as you said, I was able to uh, to track down uh, one of the very few women who were present at the conference, uh, Dorothy Hahn, who was a young economics student at the time, and she became uh, Friedrich Hayek's secretary. And she and he brought her with him to the uh, to the conference. And she is the one who who punched in those minutes that are now preserved in a few archives around the world that I used as a sort of main source. Uh, but I also got to go visit her in in Cambridge and have a few chats with her. I mean, she didn't. She didn't remember that much, obviously, because it was a very long time ago. But she was still able to give me some some sort of uh, yeah, some sort of little details about how the fact that she had a um, they had a French typewriter, and uh, that meant at the time that, that that some of the keys were in different places, and that made it harder for her to type in the, the discussion as it went on. Uh, those sorts of things, which which is the type of thing that gives you as an historian, it makes you feel a bit closer, and and it also makes you feel. Like you do have an obligation to the past, to what happened. You can't just sort of, when you sit with just little documents and pieces and quotes, it's, it's quite easy to sort of rip that out of context and create your own story about what happened, um, which in one way is what you have to do anyway. That is what you're doing. <laughs> but it, you, you still, uh, uh, I think it's, like it's, um, it's a good reminder that this, this was actually real. This actually took place. These were actual people. They were actually having these conversations. Well, seventy-four years ago, pretty much to this week, actually. Uh, and and you, you've got this—you've got the story of the of the orange as well. Could you could you just tell us that? Yeah. So that yeah, that was one of the things she told me. How um, how obviously this is so an incredibly important context for this nineteen forty-seven meeting is that we're just after the Second World War, and I mean there there's widespread hunger in 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 parts of Europe and. And Dorothy had lived through the Blitz in London, and she and and then they came down to this hotel in Switzerland. And Switzerland was sort of an oasis in a Europe that had been thoroughly destroyed by the Second World War. And uh, as I go into some detail about too, they they were also quite sort of um, well funded, uh, a well funded group, and most of the individuals were quite from wealthy backgrounds themselves, and they lived a sort of Upper class existence, and so she was. She was struck by by this hotel in the Alps. How beautiful it was! How lavish and luxurious everything was, and just down to the simple fact that they were given oranges uh, at lunchtime one day. And being nineteen or whatever, I can't remember the correct number, but a very young girl, uh, and having lived through the Second World War in London, she had. A, she told me she at that point did not know how to peel an orange. Uh, and there's also the whole, then she told me that she was very embarrassed by this, which you can only imagine being uh, the only woman pretty much and being very young and surrounded by sort of famous half aristocratic uh, economists. Uh, and then her boss, uh, Friedrich Hayek, uh, was kind enough to, uh, to peel the orange for her. But this sort of was a very embarrassing moment 
for her. That she, this is one of the few things she really, that really struck out that she really remembered yes. from the, from the, the things you remember. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, we'll we'll come back to Montpellier uh, later in the conversation, but I think we should go go back to the the narrative structure you have, which is to begin with the socialist calculation debates, and really. You pinpoint that in 1920s Vienna as really the the very beginnings of this movement. So, could, could you explain what these what these debates were and who the main players involved were? Yeah, I think uh, to explain that, I think uh, in the thesis, in the first part of the thesis, I develop a sort of concept that I call the dual argument, which is which is something that I've made up and imposed as an analysis onto yeah. their work. It's not something they themselves use, but I think it summarizes how most of them are sort of saying two different things at once, uh, which intuitively can seem a bit contradictory, but that have a certain logic to it once you look a bit more closely at it. And I think that that logic is something of the essence of early neoliberalism as a political program. And so the first part of the dual argument is the thing that they're most famous for saying, namely that state involvement in the economy or state interference with markets leads to not only efficiency, inefficiency, sorry, uh, but actually to totalitarian dictatorships and civilizational collapse. Uh, and that's really important to have that context of the 1930s in mind. And actually, the concept of totalitarianism is how I started being interested in early neoliberalism and even in economics, for that matter, because before this, I studied concepts of totalitarianism, and this idea that Nazism and communism, fascism and socialism were just two sides of the same totalitarian coin. And the economic aspect of that idea comes from early neoliberalism, and it was developed by these thinkers. And so what they were saying, in essence, was... What really lay behind the rise to power of dictators like Hitler, Mussolini, and Stalin, and what made the three similar, despite their differences, was the extent to which they used state power to subvert market mechanisms. Um, And in a sense, this is not so much saying that socialists are fascists as it is saying that fascists are a type of socialists. Uh, Because it was through these socialist calculation debates, which were hugely interesting and long-standing controversy, which started in uh, Vienna just after World War I and went on for decades. It was through these debates that the neoliberal understanding of market mechanisms as really the bedrocks of Western civilization and that which made modern society possible, really, uh, was developed. And so Mises started already in 1920 and arguing that socialists actually had no plan for how to run society, i.e. the economy, and that Without market mechanisms, um, it just wouldn't work. And then some socialist economists uh, responded, uh, not Marxists, notably, but neoclassical economists known as market socialists. Uh, And they were saying things like, yes, Mises, you're right, we really do need markets for social coordination in this complex and intertwined modern society in which we live. But luckily, uh, we can have markets and market-like structures within a socialist system in which the means of production are collectively owned. Uh, that, that was their argument, and, and a great challenge uh, to Mises. Uh, and Hayek then entered the debate, the debate some years later, and he was a sort of uh, protégé of Mises, and he really refined the notion of not only how important markets are for social coordination, but what it is that they really do, which is, in a sense, that they extract and in some ways even create the knowledge that's needed to coordinate the actions of a multitude of social actors who can't all agree among themselves or sit down and have meetings about every last thing. Uh, So it follows from that, as you can imagine, that any sort of state planning is just simply not going to work because planners don't have access to and 
just fundamentally cannot even get all this information and knowledge, which is generated spontaneously through the market mechanism. And Hayek also, also noted against these schemes of market socialism that these ideas to make sort of market-like structures within socialism were bound to fail uh, without the role of private property and the profit motive. They wouldn't be real markets, he said, something which I think is worth noting. And you can see then how this um, quite economistic argument is also blended very strongly into political arguments and concerns eventually about uh, individual liberty and so on. And that's expanded onto the argument that Hayek presented in The Road to Serfdom in 1944, that all the incompetence of state planners will uh, will lead to social unrest, there'll be calls for a dictator, there'll be suppression of dissent and so on. But the idea is that all of this sort of starts with intervening with the market mechanisms. And that that idea comes from the socialist calculation debate. And you can say it certainly builds on past thinkers, Adam Smith, notably. Um, but there's also something new about it, and that new the newness of it comes from meeting with the idea of socialism. And so you'd think then that they'd, that they'd just be laissez-faire and, and against all state involvement in the economy. But that's the second part uh, of the dual argument, which is more muted in publications, but which really came out strongly at this 1947 conference, uh, namely the idea that you do still have to use the state. Uh, and in some ways... In some ways, this is about providing some sort of minimal social safety net, uh, which was an idea that was gaining acceptance um, everywhere at the time due to the just enormous social problems of the interwarriors. But there's also a more sustained argument in there for the importance of state power in a market society. Um, and we might get into that when we talk about the debates at the conference, but but in short, it was it was economic planning they were against, not state action per se. And in fact, they realized that they needed the state to have a society based on market markets, that the state had a vital role in creating the framework for the market economy and even in protecting markets uh, against political interference. So there was a strong attack on laissez-faire liberalism too, implied in early, early neoliberalism. And sometimes it was very explicit too. I mean, Hayek said that the wrote in the road to certain that the notion of laissez-faire was one of the things that have done the greatest harm to the liberal cause, for instance. And so through this dual argument, which emerges through the interwar years, uh, you also have, you have a sustained argument both against social liberalism, because the idea that economic planning by Keynesians and social liberals too, not just socialists and fascists, uh, this leads to socialism, which leads to tyranny. And you have a strong argument against laissez-faire liberalism. And this, I think, more than more so than the fact that they used the phrase neoliberalism every now and then themselves. But Hayek, for instance, never used it. But the fact that they were actually actively going against both existing currents of liberalism at the time is what makes neoliberalism quite an apt phrase to describe their project. They really did want a new liberalism, which didn't shy away from using the state, like Lassefer did, but also didn't use the state to subvert the workings of the market mechanism, uh, like social liberalism did. Thought. Yeah, you, you you say, so before the war, you have this quote where you say that they had this vision that neoliberalism would become a competing theory of modernity. And I, I guess the, the, the framework of the theory became much clearer after the war because of the experience of the war and also because of the conference and so on. But before that, there was this uh, colloquium in Paris in 1938 that, that there was where they sort of attached themselves to this American... Uh, journalist uh, Walter Lippmann, 
Um, can you talk us through the 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 discussion in Paris and, and, and what came out of that? Yeah, I think in and uh, I think what's especially so the, there was this colloquium in 1938, um, which was given sort of in honor of Walter Lippmann's book, The Good Society, and the fact that it had been it was published in 1937 in English, but there was a French translation in 1938. And in on, in on the occasion of that translation being published, a colloquium was held. Uh, to which were invited uh, many, at least of the European people who would become central for the Mont Pelerin Society some years later. So in a sense, it's a sort of um, early attempt at a neoliberal organization, which was then had to be abandoned uh, because of the outbreak of war. And then uh, it was picked up again after 47. And um, uh, we have the minutes of that meeting uh, too. They were published in French. Um, but Hayek uh, doesn't is, is not uh, listed as someone who speaks, but there is actually a footnote saying that Hayek did speak, but as he spoke in uh, not in French, his minutes his, uh, his <laughs> sentence weren't recorded. Uh, and so I think Wait, he, he got his, he got his revenge in 1947. Exactly, right? <laughs> yeah, because uh, it turns out I also found some letters between uh, Walter Lippmann and Hayek. Uh, where we see that one thing is that Walter Lippmann had gotten a lot of inspiration from Hayek and Mises in the socialist calculation debates. And the other thing is that uh, the list of names to be invited to this colloquium in Paris in 38 was actually more or less compiled by Hayek. So uh, Hayek was, was uh, he became the first president of the Montpellier Society. He selected the attendees and he was in the, both in an organizational and in an intellectual sense, certainly the leader of that movement. And if you go back to 1938, it seems he was actually very important uh, for that meeting too. Uh, but I, what I think is interesting about the Littman Colloquium too is that it's, uh, there's a lot of renewed interest in it now. And I think I write at some point that in a sense, it's the most social liberal moment of neoliberalism. Uh, it's a time when these thinkers are... Uh, it's the time when they are the most attuned to sort of social problems and they want to make their new liberalism, which they even sort of take a vote and call it neoliberalism. But one of the other alternatives is left, left liberalism. So you, you can see where that's going, that it's almost left leaning, but uh, that's something that progressively diminishes over the years. And there's a lot less of that when you come to 1947 uh, and even much, much more so when you go into the history of the neoliberal movement, when it actually gets going, so to speak. Yeah, although interestingly, I mean, well, I guess we should move on to, to the Mont Pelerin meeting now, but um, there, there was, you, you identify different groups at Mont Pelerin. So let's take Hayek as being the centre and, as you say, the, the, the main organiser. But there was also, there was to his right, you had Mises and you had Lauren Miller, but then you had this big group to, you know, to use a loose term, to his left, that were um, people like Lionel Robbins, who'd been who'd been influenced by their experience uh, during the war. Um, even people like Milton Friedman, who, who taught much more about uh, some kind of social safety net. Um, so uh, anyway, that I, I, I digress slightly. We, we should begin by setting the scene for, for, for Mont Pelerin. This was, as you say, very much uh, Hayek's baby. And it, it's quite funny. You you say that he, he organized the sessions in the first week, um, didn't organize the ones in the second week. And as a result, he saw the ones in the first week as the most important. 
Yeah, and, and I think they were. I mean, for anyone who's been to a conference, they get, I mean, they, they can end up being slightly disappointing uh, because people talk, uh, people aren't really relating to the other people's argument and and there's a lot of people in the same room and they're talking past each other. I mean, this happens all the time and it certainly happened on the ramp. I mean, I would say even the first week of sessions that I pre-programmed was very sort of carefully structured and you, you can, that tells us a lot about how we wanted uh, how we wanted this to progress. And I think it's important to see that in his welcome speech and also in the introduction to the, to the very first session, which he said was the most important one, uh, he framed the whole conference as a quest to move beyond laissez-faire um, and to work out more concretely uh, what it would mean to plan, plan for competition and not against competition, which was a phrase he had used in The Road to Serfdom that he'd published three years before this. So we almost wanted a sort of collective effort to find ways of using modern states, uh, not instead of market mechanisms, but in support of them, as I was saying. And there's a, there's a level of pragmatism there that they had to sort of, had to accept that the state is an important institution in modern economic life. Uh, but there's much more than that too. There's a sort of serious intellectual argument about precisely the importance of using states, not because markets aren't good, but because of how good they are. It's not to uh, it's not to sort of uh, do things that the market can't do, but it's in order to make sure that this market logic is applied uh, to almost to almost all aspects of how we coordinate modern social life. And there's a thousand question arises from that core premise about how you would do that and where do you draw the line and who's in charge of that and so on. But that's that's I think very much the core premise. And as you were yeah, saying, it, it, no, sorry, yeah. No, I was going to say, in in broad strokes, do you think, because this is the impression I got reading uh, your chapter about the opening session, in broad strokes, he was really bringing in the auto-liberal argument, the argument coming from the Freiburg group around uh, Walter Eucken and so on, that, um, that the market, need, the, basically, you needed institutions in place to protect the market from excessive democracy. Which you know, which which, so for example, one of the things that they pushed very hard was was the idea of an independent cartel office, independent of democratic interference, um, which had been practiced in the United States for for quite some time, effectively. Um, and then Friedman and Hayek came in with a discussion, uh, actually at a later session about. Um, setting rules for an independent central bank. Do you think it's fair to say that the auto-liberal influence was the, was the really key one in that discussion? At least in these terms, but I, th I think in a sense the Austrian school is kind of where it begins. They bring in the idea that the, that the market is this sort of superhuman mediator of modern social life. And the auto-liberals are inspired by that, uh, and they add the crucial ingredient, so to speak, that the state has an important role to play to make modern society into a market society, yeah. And then you have the Chicago School Americans who, who at that point seem to agree with the order liberals, especially on the importance of competition law to avoid the type of monopolies and cartels that were, that were seen as a big problem with the capitalist order, I mean, almost by everyone in the early 20th century. They agree with this sort of order liberal proposition that the most important thing about the market is the competitive process. And in a sense, that the market left to its own devices can tend to produce a situation that is not competitive that it almost undermines itself. And so that's why expert economists and lawyers need to make rules that help the market mechanism in a way realize its true uh, potential. And that's a bit different, really, from 
how Hayek sort of thinks that no experts can know better than the market. But it is related, and Hayek sort of sees himself as the one expert that does understand the market. Um, but the Chicago School economists some years later take that same logic that the order liberal used, the central neoliberal argument that the market is a spontaneous device for social coordination. And then they get a different, perhaps more logical conclusion, namely that competition law and antitrust regulation is bad, that that's the government interfering with the market. Uh, and that Although to be, to be fair, that was, that was sort of 30 years later, right? So Absolutely, it was, yeah. Yeah. So at that moment in 1947, they seem to all be on board with this and the order liberal influence in what Hayek is saying and how he's presenting the whole project seems to be very strong. Absolutely. Mm. And you make this very good point, uh, which I hadn't thought of, of, you know, the thing that Milton Friedman became famous for later, which is his 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 monetary rule, you know, his core monetary rule, is really a rule set by the state. So it's actually in keeping with this idea of the state being this uh, uh, of having this core task that that pushes back against uh, let's say fair thinking for example exactly yeah. and there's just a brief little mention of this issue in one session uh, in which a great many things were discussed at once but both friedman and george stigler another chicago economist uh, bring out the issue of the money supply uh, in a discussion on keynesianism and and some decades later as he said monetarism would be a sort of dagger to the heart of the post-war Keynesian neoclassical synthesis. Uh, but again, the monetarist argument wasn't that the state should do nothing. It was that the state should do something, but something different than what it was doing. It should try to stabilize the economy through the money supply, which was then based on a similar logic, right? That you should use the state in the service of the market mechanism, so to speak, rather than to try to subvert mechanisms or even uh, supply them, so to speak. And you also have this, I mean, I guess a much bigger issue uh, for anybody who thinks they know Hayek, for example. You, you, you have a quote from the minutes where he says that in a modern community, sanitary and health services could not possibly be provided by the market for the obvious reason that no price can be charged to the beneficiaries. You know, that's, I mean, you imply, actually, I think you say it, that that he was really you know, the, the, he was only saying that because of the time he was living through. Do, do you think that is right? Or do you think it, he, he may simply have accepted that that is the case, that, that in, a, in, a, in a modern economy, in a modern society, you cannot charge, charge the final beneficiary the, the price of sanitary services and particularly of healthcare services? I mean, he could, he could have meant that at the time. Sure, but I, I think if you look at his, his sort of his uh, quite vehement opposition to welfare states uh, in the later post-war years, then uh, it, it seems uh, it seems that it was uh, a, um, a bit of pragmatism involved in just sort of accepting that at the time. I think. But also think it's interesting how how we've ended up. I mean, that's beyond the scope of this book, but it's something I write about in my book about market reforms in Norway. Uh, how I think it was very much beyond something these people could have thought of at that time in 1947, the extent to which we have had different kinds of marketizations of welfare states, uh, which in some ways could be said to have been at least inspired by these ideas about what, what markets are and what they do. Um, and so I guess um, uh, full privatizations are quite rare, at, uh, not, not in terms of state, state-owned enterprises, but in Within welfare states, it's more common that you get these voucher system uh, uh, solutions that, are, that were pioneered by, my, by Milton Friedman much later, where you 
pay private companies to deliver public services and you sort of create the market for private companies in delivering public services. And then you have these other new public management systems of sort of pseudo markets within public enterprises when there are actually no profit-seeking entities involved. They're all public entities, but they're somehow meant to compete in a market-like structure anyway. I think that's completely beyond the pale of something of what Hayek could have imagined at the time. But it's still something that in oh, a sense yeah. owes something to his thinking. Yeah, I expect so. And and, and I, I think I think public choice school is, as you point out in the book, came out of uh, came out of the Chicago school. Um, but uh, having an internal market for uh, for services is not the same as charging the final beneficiary. Uh, no, exactly. For, yeah, 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 and I think, and so I think, I, and I think, in some way, the the debates uh, Hayek had with market socialists, and he was quite clear saying that uh, it's not going to be a real market, is it? If if you don't have uh, companies in it and uh, private property, uh, so yeah. I don't think these those types of internal markets uh, really would count as markets in Hayek's understanding of what a market is. Yeah, yeah. Um, you point out, you say that the younger members of the group were desperate to move beyond Mises' laissez-faire stance and find ways to use the, mod- the power of modern states for liberal ends. And it's very striking in your, uh, your narrative from, from the first week just how isolated Mises is. I mean, as I say, perhaps he has Lauren Miller behind him sometimes, but it, it is. I sometimes wonder why he was invited when, when Hayek against the advice of Karl Popper, didn't invite um, people who, who might have been considered social liberals or, 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 or even left liberals. Do, do you think, do you, hey, well, I, I guess this is, we're, we're, we're playing God here, but do you think it was a mistake not to bring in a, a, a wider group and, and to have Mises there as this sort of grumpy um, drag on everything else? Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, it's it's incredible to see this, to just look at the discussions and how incredibly stubborn he's being, and he's just not listening. <laughs> he's just saying, no, the state can only do bad, and then you have the whole rest of these people that very much build on his understanding of what markets are, but they're trying to present a rather sort of nuanced and complex argument about how you still need the state somehow, and he just will not have it. And <laughs> he's advocating this sort of. 19th century laissez-faire position out of spite, almost. Um, but as you said, he had this guy, Lorne Miller, who uh, who supported him. And there were quite a few other um, people like Lorne Miller, who was not a sort of famous economist, but he worked, he worked for one of the early uh, U.S. think tanks, I think perhaps the Foundation for Economic Education, if I'm not wrong. And I think something that happened, and I've been reading about this in a great book that was just released about the Austrian school by someone called Yannick Wasserman, who's a great researcher. He wrote a book called The Marginal Revolutionaries about the history of the Austrian school. And I think something, I mean, I think Hayek actually had a personal relationship to Mises. He was his mentor and there's all this sort of cultural stuff about the Austrian school and how they relate to those things. So he owed him a big debt personally, but also sort of intellectually because he actually did start the socialist calculation debates and that is kind of um, where they got this idea about the market as a sort of superhuman information processor, which they then add the order liberal ingredient to that, <laughs> that uh, Hayek refuses to do that. But the thing about 
Mises is that he gets to be so popular when he uh, moves to the US and he gets to have a lot of uh, business backing and a lot of think tanks and a whole sort of whole sort of almost sect and sort of new school, new generation of so-called Austrian economists who, who are Americans and who sort of worship Mises. And they're quite well funded. And it means, and Mises, and a lot of the people, as you said, a lot of the people who were too high ex left, so to speak, not the old liberals, but a lot of the sort of um, Scandinavians, like Carl Ibsen, someone like Maurice Allais, a lot of the people who have a sort of moderate, almost social liberal voice at the first conference, or Karl Popper, for that matter, they actually end up uh, more leaving actively or just sort of uh, not continuing on in the organization. Whereas uh, the American think tanks who love Mises, they have all the money. And I think that does matter to a certain extent, that that's where you can get your funding to keep having this organization. And in a sense, the organization moves towards Mises, after the war, I mean, I didn't write about this in the book because I stopped it abruptly after that 1947 meeting. But I'm, I'm thinking about uh, writing a paper about what happened afterwards in those. Uh, oh yeah, please do. Terms. And I do think just the funding aspect of it matters. Uh, the fact that Mises got this new, whole new sort of aura and position in the U.S. Mm. after emigrating there, and I, and then the question is, what did Hayek really mean? Uh, was he sort of, I saw someone writing a paper quite recently in Norwegian indicating that uh, the real, and this is a bit of a trend now to say that the real neoliberalism, this is for people who sort of believe in the ideas of neoliberalism, but they're quite sort of progressive. There's a bit of a sort of trend now for kind of progressive cosmopolitan neoliberals, and they're very much at odds with the more sort of mm, very right-wing paleo-conservative, even racist wings of the same movement, which exists in Europe with the alternative for Deutschland people and so on. But anyway, for these people, it's quite important to say that the real neoliberalism is the neoliberalism of the Walter Lippmann Colloquium of 1938, because it's more progressive and it has this sort of almost social liberal side to it. Um, uh, and the idea in this paper I was reading was that... Um, was that Hayek sort of lost his way after 1938 and he became an old-fashioned sort of Mises being liberal instead, where there was an opening for him at a time. Well, I didn't, I, didn't get that, I didn't get that impression from your account of the 1947 meeting. It's, he still seemed very balanced. And you actually make this point that um, it was the publication of the Road to Serfdom in 1944 and its serialization in, in Reader's Digest, which meant that the dual argument was never really made in the United States. So he, 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 the only argument that seemed to be made in the US on behalf of Hayek was the, was the Austrian argument. Um, so, yeah, I didn't get the impression from your book that 38 no, think, yeah, and 47 and was, uh, was that different. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I think he was in a sort of in an ordo-liberal phase, so to speak, Yeah, uh, yeah. at that time, yeah. Um, yeah, I want to move on to another really, really fascinating uh, bit, which is the session on European Federation. And again, I guess this might come as a bit of a shock to to uh, Hayek and Eurosceptics, but um, Hayek was was a very, very much in favour of European Federation. And the reason he was, he'd written a paper in 1939, which you refer to, that he felt that federations could uh, could be used to limit the extent of economic planning since planning only works under conditions of 
comparative homogeneity, common convictions and ideals that come from a nation state. And uh, interestingly, this, this was taken up um, by a paper in 2005 by uh, Vitor Gaspar, who, who was at the time, well, not at the time, he had been the European Central Bank's first head of research. He's now at the IMF. But he, he concluded the same thing, inspired by Hayek, that the idea that um, the EU, in its very diversity, it, it it's difficult to agree policies that can favour particular interests or react to headlines. And this means that conditions are, as he puts, propitious to produce a framework of stable rules that lead to stable expectations. So I, that's a, it's a really fascinating debate. Um do you feel that that has been lost? That sort of uh, lost in intellectual history, that that uh, um, auto liberal stroke Hayekian liberal uh, federalist argument. Um, well, I, it may have, yeah. I mean, I think there are people who brought it up, like uh, for instance Wolfgang Schreck is one of the people who have who have raised it as a bit of a boogeyman in a sense, saying that, you know, the EU is actually a neoliberal construction. Look at what, look at what Hayek uh, wrote in 1939. Uh, that's just a blueprint for the EU, which which um, wasn't really the case if you look at how um, how neoliberals like Willem Röpke and many others were very against the EU in the beginning because they thought it would, it would be economic planning just on a, on a supranational level. Even worse, so to speak. Uh, and in some senses it was, but I think it, you could definitely argue that it has gone uh, closer to the Hayekian vision, especially with the common currency and so on. Um, but I think it's interesting uh, how Gaspar, because I read that paper too, just like Hayek said, like he emphasizes heterogeneity or diversity. And I think that's a really interesting part of the overall argument that modern society as a whole for Hayek, or in this case, Europe, is so diverse, it's so full of different individuals with different interests and values and ideas. And, and that's why we can't really ever agree on anything. Um, and it makes democracy really hard, it makes it too hard. And, and that's what makes, in a sense, also state-run economic policies inefficient and uh, potentially disastrous. And I think, I think that points to a very real and interesting problem with democracy. It's, it's, it's very much bringing out... Uh, an incredibly important aspect there. And a Hayek solution, of course, is, is then to try and limit the reach of democracy and sort of let the market do its magic. And so they, so they, um, he even quotes uh, Lord Acton saying that of all the curbs, all the checks on democracy, uh, federation is the best one, or I, I can't remember the correct wording. So, but so, so sometimes, and especially in the Gaspard paper, he talks about federalism as a means to curb special interest politics. And but what they what they mean by special interest is democracy. And of course, that is an innate problem with democracy. But really, that is what they're talking about. And it, I think it's I, I write quite a lot about that. Uh, the actual, the very clear skepticism towards democracy with uh, with popular suffrage, which was really you know quite a new thing at the time. Uh, and they really did think that that was a very problematic development, which threatened the market order. And they had, and they had reasons to think so too. But I don't think we need to sugarcoat it either. They were actually very skeptical uh, to democracy. But I guess, and I, and there are different views, there are different ways of seeing democracy. As if if it's a, if it's just a system to sort of change the administrative committee uh, every four years or so, or 
if democracy is a potentially transformative movement that has the potential to radically alter society and social hierarchies. And, and I would argue that, it, that democracy at least had the potential of being the latter uh, in those years. And that's at least part of what the early neoliberals uh, are reacting against. Yeah, but it doesn't doesn't it really depend who, whether your side wins or not? I mean, th- this is the. I, I, I sometimes wonder if the, the the current intellectual moment has some similarities to what they went through in 1947, and that they they'd they were looking at what democracy had delivered over the over the previous you know, ten to fifteen years, and some people now are looking at you know four years of Trump. 10 years of Orban, uh, the potential for uh, uh, Marine Le Pen, the potential for uh, Matteo Salvini. And they start to consider questions like, I mean, um, uh, Jan Werner uh, Muller writes about this, the idea of constrained democracy. So it's not taking away democracy. It's coming up with institutions that can protect uh certain core elements of the democracy, whoever wins. And, and I wonder if there is an overlap with the way that this group was thinking in 1947, that, that, that perhaps that there, um, w- one could be more generous about what at least some of them were thinking. Absolutely. And I mean, at least, and they build on a sort of on a liberal tradition, which is all about uh, uh, limiting the powers of the sovereign. Uh, but I mean, there has been a change in between there when when early liberals were trying to limit the the power powers of uh, of absolutist monarchs, and then there's there has been something in between there which has made the state into potentially something quite different than it was with the rise of popular democracy, uh, and obviously it carries with it all kinds of problems too. But I I just think that I'm not saying that we just. <laughs> I'm not trying to present some sort of uh, naive argument about how everything will be uh, beautiful if just the people decide. But I do think we should be clear about what we're talking about uh, when we're talking about democracy, really. And if, and since because it's become such a word, I mean, everyone loves democracy. Everyone's pro-democracy. <laughs> so you can, but uh, uh, I, I just think we could have this debate in more clear terms, really. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this um, follow-up paper you're talking about, um, how, how, how soon might we expect to, uh, to see that? Uh, considering not my work capacity, but uh, how <laughs> journals are run, uh, yeah. I'd say it might be a few years, but I'm, I'm resubmitting in June. <laughs> so we'll see. Okay, I'll look forward to that. So um, just to finish, I always ask my guests to recommend a couple of books, one broadly from their own field and one personal choice. What have you chosen? Yes, um, I've chosen uh, from my own field, I've chosen a book by a brilliant professor called Melinda Cooper, and her book is called Family Values. Uh, And that's a book that's sort of, uh, because when you look at neoliberalism and neoliberal ideas, there are all kinds of... um, there are all kinds of quite progressive things in there, um, as we've been talking about some of them. Mm. And even sort of human capital theory uh, can, by some, be seen as a sort of progressive, um, uh, not conservative approach to society. Uh, but I think one thing that's quite important to remember about this group, and most of them, is that they are sort of fundamentally placed on the political right in all their different contexts. And what she writes about is how Chicago school economists in the 70s entered into all kinds of sort of alliances with social conservatives 
uh, and which led to things like um, the inflation crisis being understood as a sort of moral problem that had to do with uh, society's norms being uh, abandoned and uh, black people getting uh, getting rights, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And she has this sort of brilliant combination of both being incredibly well read in philosophy and gender theory and all of these things. And at the same time, just having the history of economics and all of these ideas down to the minutest detail. So I really, really recommend that book uh, for seeing somehow those neoliberal ideas uh, work out in practice and in sort of combination with other types of right-leaning ideas. Yeah. Okay. And, and uh, your on second a personal note. <laughs> well, I just I just finished reading uh, the trilogy by uh, Rachel Cusk. Uh, what are they called? They're called uh, uh, Transit Kudos Departure. Perhaps not in that order. And mm-hmm. that's just something I would recommend reading for for the for the just absolutely mind blowingly brilliant writing. It's not it's not something you read for the sort of story or the plot, but just for how unbelievably good the writing is. So that's a recommendation. Okay. Well, thank you. Uh, today I've been talking to Ola Inset about his Reinventing Liberalism, published last year by Springer. Ola, thanks very much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Tim. <laughs>